Uh, my name is Dan Min. I serve as the pastor here at ACF, and it's my joy to serve in this capacity, and I want to welcome you here this morning. For the last several weeks, if you've been tracking with us, uh, in fact, for the, for the good part of this semester, we've been in a, in a series called Stories That Move Us, Stories That Move Us, and this is a series based on the parables of Jesus, where we're looking at these stories that Jesus told that were intended to move us in a particular kind of way, in, in that... It, if we were to uncover the meaning and the significance of these stories, our lives would presumably change. Our lives would literally move from here to where God wants us to be. And we're bringing this series to a close uh, today. We're landing the plane finally. And, and uh, thus far, we looked at all kinds of stories. We looked at a story about a sower and a guy who's sowing his seeds in all different kinds of terrain and different soils, right? And then we looked at a story about a, a mustard seed and leaven, not necessarily story elements I would choose to tell a good story, but, but Jesus wanted to communicate some kingdom principles using a mustard seed. And leaven. Uh, we looked at another story about a, a, a servant who had sort of an unforgiving nature about him, and we talked about the implications of what unforgiveness can have on our lives. Uh, we looked at a story that was familiar to, to many of us, that, are, that is familiar to those of us who grew up in the church and maybe not even have, have, have stepped foot into a church uh, up until this point, uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. And we talked about what that meant for us uh, today. Last week, we looked at three stories uh, that had a common denominator. It was all about lost stuff, uh, about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And today, we're bringing this series to a close by looking at one last story. It wasn't the last story that Jesus told, but it's the last story we're going to look at for this series, because every good thing needs to come to an end, right? And so we're going to look at this story the parable of the persistent widow. The parable of the persistent widow. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and throw your hand up in the air real quick. We'll have some folks coming around. They'll hook you up with the Bible here. If you don't personally own a copy of the Bible, feel free to take this home with you. Consider this our gift to you. You can write your name in it and take it home with you. Uh, we don't expect you to return it to us. Uh, but if you are following along in these uh, hardback Bibles, we are on page 877. 877 is where we are. Uh, Luke chapter 18, and uh, we're going to find ourselves in the story that Jesus tells us of this persistent widow. We're going to pick it up from verse 1 and carry it through to verse 8. And so it's not a, a lengthy passage, but there's a lot in here that I believe we can unpack here for our time here today. Luke chapter 18, we'll pick it up from verse 1, and uh, I'll read it through to verse 8, and then uh, we'll circle back around to some, some things that I believe God wants to download to us here this morning. It says this, and he, he being Jesus, told them, them being the disciples of Jesus, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now this is one of those few times that Jesus tells us the moral of the story right up front. Even before he goes into the actual parable, he says, guys, this is what this parable is about. He tells us this, the, the point of the parable right up front we ought to always pray and never lose heart. In verse two, he starts the parable. He says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused, the judge refused. But afterward, he said to himself, 
Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, he turns to his disciples, Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells them, hear what the unrighteous judge says. In other words, guys, don't miss this. Guys, don't miss what I'm trying to tell you. I want you to get a clear picture of what I'm trying to say to you. In light of this unrighteous judge, this is what my Father in heaven is like. Remember, parables were often told to reflect kingdom truths, right? Jesus often told these stories to tell what God was like, what the kingdom of God was like. And so here he's saying, here's this unrighteous judge. In light of what I'm telling you, in light of what this unrighteous judge said, listen to what my Father in heaven is like. In verse 7, He goes on and he says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, quickly, immediately. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, the moral of the story here is quite simple, right? We already established it right up front. Jesus gives it to us, and we could put it this way. Always pray and never lose heart. Always pray and never lose heart. In fact, if we ended the service right there, that would be a great takeaway. Always pray and never lose heart. But for the sake of our time here today, I want to reword that just a little bit. In fact, the statement that I'm going to provide for you will serve as sort of our sermon outline for today. And so if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. I believe that this passage tells us that we are to pray God-conscious, faith-filled, long-enduring prayers. I believe that Jesus tells us this parable in order to get us to pray God-conscious, faith-filled, long-enduring prayers. And so yes, we are to pray always and never lose heart, but more specifically, I believe that we are to pray God-conscious, faith-filled, long-enduring prayers, and so let's break this down into some bite-sized pieces, some Reese's Pieces size, not Reese's peanut butter cup size, Reese's Pieces size, Reese's Pieces where it's at, people, all right, that's, can anyone say amen to that, amen, and anyone with me, man, you forget it, forget it, that's all right, what do we mean when we say God-conscious prayers? Here's what we're talking about when we say God-conscious prayers. God-conscious prayers are prayers that are centered around God and his character. God-conscious prayers are prayers that are centered and rooted in the character of God, in the person of God, in the very essence of who God is. Church, can I suggest to us that too many of our prayers are self-conscious. Too many of our prayers are driven by our wants, by our needs. God, I want this. I need this. God, I need you to do this in my life. So many of our prayer lives are driven by our personal wants, our personal needs, and our personal asks. Now, don't get me wrong, church. I'm not saying that's wrong. In fact, the Bible encourages us to bring our needs before God, right? To bring our petitions, to make our requests known before God, as Philippians tells us, right? And so I'm not saying that it's, it's outside of the biblical boundaries to bring our personal wants and our needs before God. I'm just saying that if your entire prayer life is comprised of just you bringing your needs before God, I would submit to you, church, that you are missing a critical aspect of prayer, the God-conscious aspect of prayer, the God-conscious aspect of prayer. 
I want you to, uh, uh, in order to understand this idea of God-conscious prayers, we need, to, we need to pull the scope back of the story just a little bit. I want you to notice, even before we go into the plot of the story, I want you to notice the characters in the story. Now, that makes it real simple, because there are only two characters, one being who? You tell me. The widow, right? I heard someone whisper it, like you're like half dead. The widow. The other, it makes the, which makes the other character Who? The judge, thank you. The widow and the judge. It's quite simple. Now, I want you to know, church, Jesus doesn't randomly choose these characters in the story. He is very intentional about choosing these two characters. Why? Because Jesus chooses two characters who sit on the opposite ends of the power scale. If on one end of the scale you had someone who held zero power, no power, they had no authority, no voice, you would have a widow. And then on the other hand of the scale, on the other side of the scale, if you were to choose someone who had great authority, immense power, you would choose someone like the judge. Now first things first, let's look at the widow for a minute. We know that in the story, the widow was a woman. Now some of you may know this, during this time in ancient civilization, women had zero to no power at all. They had no say in any kind of way, they had no voice. In fact, let me just say this, I don't say this as a political statement or anything like that. I believe that today we've got, we still have a long ways to go in terms of gender equality. I do. But can we just agree for a moment that we've come a long ways from where things have been? During this time in ancient civilization and biblical history, women were seen as less than human. They were seen as less than human, much more than that. They were seen as objects of possession to be owned by a man. Aren't you glad we don't live in that society anymore? That, that was the cultural norm during this time. Furthermore, the, the story tells us that this was a widowed woman a widowed woman, which made matters worse because at least when you were tethered to a man, you served a positive function in society, one of procreation. Now, if you were a widowed woman, that meant you had no man to attach yourself to, which left you with one of two options. You were going to either prostitute yourself or you were going to die a barren woman, both of which carried an incredible amount of shame in the society. So as a widowed woman, during this particular time in history, you were seen as easily discardable, utterly useless, completely powerless. Now on the other hand, a judge was held in high esteem. A judge held enormous power. In fact, a judge determined by their discretion based on their call, their rule, they decided whether people got what they wanted or not. That's power. That's power, to be able to make a call, a judgment call, and decide whether someone gets what they want or not. Not only that, they were, they were considered the moral authority during that time. They determined what was right and what was wrong. Again, no small ranking. Incredible power, incredible authority. Judges held enormous power in this societal structure during this time. Now this parable paints the judge in a not so good light, right? You know, the unrighteous judge. And Jesus does that intentionally for a reason to, to highlight a point that we're going to come to in just a moment. But nonetheless, this is still a judge. A judge who holds power, who holds a certain level of status, who holds a certain level of authority during this time. This judge is met by this woman who holds absolutely no power at all. So get the picture, folks. 
when this widowed woman comes to the judge, here's essentially what the widow is saying. Judge, I know my place in society. I know that I have no power in and of myself to bring about justice, to bring about any sort of change to my situation. I know that I am utterly, completely powerless. I know. But judge, I also know that you hold all the power to bring about all the change that I need in all of my life. I happen to know, judge, that you hold the power and authority to make a certain kind of call to bring about a certain kind of change in my life. I've got nothing, judge. I know that. But judge, I also happen to know that you've got everything. I've got no power, but judge, I know that you've got all the power. I've got nothing, but you've got everything. And friends, don't miss this. At the essence of prayer, this is exactly precisely what we find. Prayer is about coming in our powerless state and acknowledging God as all-powerful God who holds infinite might and infinite wisdom. It is coming to God and saying, God, I've got nothing, but God, you've got everything. Much like the widow, our job in prayer is to come before a holy, righteous, all-powerful God and say, God, I've got nothing, but you hold all the power. You've got everything. Remember that prayer that Jesus taught us, right? Our Father prayer, the Lord's prayer. Say it with me if you know how it goes. Our Father, who art in heaven, what does it say? Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Awesome is your name. Mighty is your name. Great is your name. Powerful is your name. Notice Jesus starts there. You see, for many of us, we flip the Lord's Prayer around. We say, our Father, who art in heaven, give me my daily bread. Come on now, give it to me. Give it to me good. Lay it on me thick. Give me my daily bread. And upon doing so, only then will I determine whether or not your name is to be hallowed. Whoa. Hang on, that's not the heart of Christ when he taught us how to pray. He taught us to pray God-conscious prayers. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. I start there. I don't start with my needs. I don't start with self-conscious prayers, my laundry list of things that I want from you, things that I need you to do in my life, things that I want to see you do. Now that will come. Give me my daily bread comes later on in the prayer. But it starts with God-conscious prayers. God, you are holy, you are mighty. I am much like this widow in the story. I am utterly powerless, coming to acknowledge you, God, as all-powerful God. Church, can we get there? You think we could get there? Praying God-conscious prayers, starting, God, you are all-powerful. It needs to start there. Now notice, when you begin to pray God-conscious prayers, you begin to understand the second part of the statement for here today. We are to pray God-conscious, faith-filled prayers. In other words, when you begin to realize just who God is and just how powerful he is, all of a sudden, your prayer life gets filled up with big faith. All of a sudden, when you realize exactly who God is, it changes the way you pray. It changes the way you approach God. If faith-filled prayers is what we're talking about. You know, when I've, when I've read this passage before, because I've read this passage uh, even before preparing for this message, I always found it interesting how Jesus ended this parable. It's kind of an odd way to end this parable, right? At the end of verse 8, he ends with this question. He says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith 
on earth? Will he find faith on earth? Now, that, that's an interesting concept. Jesus seems to be drawing a connection. He's connecting the dot. He's, he's drawing a connection between the persistence of the widow and the level of her faith. Jesus seems to be drawing a correlation between the widow's persistence and the widow's faith. Not a connection point that I would naturally draw upon reading this story. I wouldn't think to myself, my, 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 look how, look how much faith this woman has. I would, listen, if I were, you know, insert yourself in the story, right? I, I mean, if I were the judge and I had someone continuing to badger me, incessantly knocking on my door, calling me nonstop all day or day. If I had someone texting me 24-7, you best believe I'm about to block their number. I mean, I'm not sitting around thinking to myself, oh man, how much faith this person has. I'm thinking, how annoying is this person? If I were writing the story, this would be the parable of the annoying widow, not the persistent widow, not the faith-filled widow. Why does Jesus say, will the Son of Man find faith on earth? Drawing a connection back to the persistence of the widow. I wonder, I wonder if the reason why Jesus is drawing this connection point is because Jesus knows that one's persistence in their pursuit of God will often reveal their faith in God. I wonder if the reason why Jesus draws this connection, don't miss this, I wonder if Jesus, the reason why Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, making, I'm te- making a connection point here between the persistence of the widow and the, the level of faith of the widow is because Jesus knows that at the end of the day, what drives you to persistence in your pursuit of God is your faith in God, is the degree of your faith in God. I wonder if what drove this widow's persistence was her very faith. Now, let's just pause here for a minute. Let me just do some clarification work here because I realize for those of us who grew up in the church, you think about faith in God, you hear the word faith, right? And you're like, yeah, faith, right? That, that's, I, I get that. Maybe those of you who didn't grow up in the church are like, faith, that's, that's like religion, right? That's what you're talking about, right, Dan? That's, faith is religion. Yes, in part, but not quite. And for, yet, for, again, for those of you who grew up in the church, you're like, faith, yeah, Hebrews 11, right? For, you know, faith is the assurance of, of things hoped for and, and the evidence and the belief in things unseen, Right? You grew up with that definition, and still some of you are sitting here today, and you're like, I, I don't know what Hebrews 11 means. Like, it's just, I, I'm not really sure. It sounds like there are a couple of double negatives in there. I'm not really sure, but I, I don't do too well with double negatives. I don't know what faith is. So let me just break it down for you real simple. I'm not trying to override Hebrews 11, or the, or the author of Hebrews. I, I love that definition, but let me just give you another working definition of faith. Faith, you can see it this way, is believing in and not just believing about Faith, in its most simple form, is believing in and not just believing about. You see, you can believe certain things about someone, but that is not always the same as believing in someone. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example here. Um, where's my brother Joel? Where, where, where are you, Joel? Come on up, Joel. I'm gonna, why break tradition, right? Why break tradition? Come on, let, let's hear it for Joel, everybody. Come on up. Yeah, come on up. <clears throat> Uh, my, my heart is grieving because Joel is a senior, and, which means that he'll be leaving us, and I lose my live sermon illustration, and so I'm going to have to choose one of you after he graduates, but uh, f- for now, I'm going I'm to use Joel as an example. Now, Joel here, um, Joel serves on our elder board. He is one of our leaders here at the church, and uh, Joel's just a dynamite guy, dynamite guy. Now, 
I happen to know certain things about Joel. I, I, in other words, I believe certain things about Joel, okay? I, I, for instance, I believe that Joel is athletic, Okay, I believe that. I, I can believe that he is athletic. Why? Because I've heard, uh, I, now, mind you, I've never seen him kick a ball, hit a ball, catch a ball. I've never seen him play a single sport, but I can believe certain things about him based on certain things that people have said about him, right? And I can make a judgment call. You know, he looks pretty athletic, all right, a little frail, but it's okay. But, I, I'm, you know, it's just like, I, I believe, I, I can, no, Joel's not frail. He's, it, I can believe certain things about, I can believe that he's athletic, though I've never seen him play a single sport. I can also believe that Joel is, is, is a nice, caring guy. How do I know that? know that? Because I've heard people say how they've been cared for by Joel. And so I, I can believe that about him. I can also believe that, that Joel genuinely loves his fiancee, Gabby. I, I can believe that. You do, right, Joel? Okay, good. <laughs> that would have made this moment really awkward. Um, I, I can believe that about Joel. Now, I can believe all these things about my brother Joel here, but church, I want you to know, I also happen to believe in Joel, which means that if I were ever found in a situation where I were to put together a sports team, guess who the first person I'm going to recruit is? Joel. Once I do, guess who I'm going to try to get the ball to as often as I can? Joel. Why? Because I believe, because I know that if I have him on my team, if I get the ball to him, he's going to deliver. I believe in him. I may have never seen him play a sport, and so I believe about his athleticism, but if I believe in him, that changes the script, that changes the game. Now I'm, I, now I'm getting him the ball as often as I can because I know, listen, I know that he's going to come through. If, because I believe in Joel, if I were to come across someone who needed caring uh, for in our church, guess who the first person I'm going to call up is? I'm going to call up Joel. Joel, I, th- there's, a, there's a, a guy, there's a gal in our church that needs some caring, that needs uh, some ministry. Would you mind just meeting with them, caring for them, and, and, and coming alongside them? I'm going to go to Joel for that because I know that he's going to care for them in the right way because I believe in Joel. Because I believe in Joel, I know that Joel and Gabby are going to have a great marriage. Why? Because I know that Joel genuinely loves Gabby like Christ loves the church, and he's going to show that in his marriage. I know that. I know that I'm going to see that. These are things that I know. Believing in someone changes the things that you believe about them. Believing in someone is not always the same as believing things about someone. When you believe in God... You are not just subscribing to a set of factual and informational things about God. When you say, I believe in God, you're saying, I put my full assurance, my full level of trust, I put a certain level of stock and investment, my life investment into you, God. That is what faith is. Faith is believing in God and not just things about God. Faith is coming to a place where we say, God, I believe you are who you say you are, and because you are who you say you are, I believe and I know, I know that you will do what you say you will do. That's faith. Faith is believing in and not just believing about. Friends, let's give Joel just a big round of applause here. Thanks, buddy. Now listen, friends, the beauty of this story is that we don't put our faith 
in an unrighteous judge like this widow did. When Jesus, said to, when Jesus turned to his disciples after telling the parable, remember, Jesus was like, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Here's what he's trying to say. You don't put your faith in an unrighteous judge who is crooked in his ways, who has no fear of God in his heart, who does not respect man. You put your faith in a good judge. You put your faith in assurance and trust in a judge that is worthy of putting your trust in. You put your faith in the perfect judge who is perfect in his ways, perfect in his righteousness, perfect in his holiness. He will always work in your favor and never against. You put your faith in that judge. Now, when you put your faith in a judge like that, it changes the way you approach that judge. It changes. It changes the way you pray to a judge like that. All of a sudden, when your prayer life gets filled up with faith, your persistence level begins to rise up in correlation with your faith. As your faith in believing in who God is and he will do what he says he will do, as that begins to rise, all of a sudden you will naturally find your persistence level begin to rise because the two are connected. The two are connected. And so this widow comes to the judge in great persistence because she has faith in him and not just about him. We come to God in persistence. Why? Because we have faith in him. We believe in him and not just things about him. Now, what happens in those moments when your faith gets tested? When you're not so sure you believe in him? When you're not so sure that you believe everything about who God is and he will do what he says he will do? I'm not sure I, I'm not sure I always believe that. Well, that's where we come to our third and final point. We are to not only pray God-conscious prayers, faith-filled prayers, but we are to pray long, enduring prayers. Not long prayers, not lengthy prayers, not uh, droning prayers, long, enduring prayers. I want you to notice that nothing was going to stop this woman. Ain't eh? nothing was going to stop this woman from getting what she wanted from the judge. Listen to what the text says in verse 3. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him who kept coming to him, kept coming to him. This was a perpetual, non-stop, incessant, just banging on the door. She kept coming to him. Then verse four, we read that for a while, the judge refused. The widow kept coming, but the judge kept refusing. She kept coming, but the judge kept refusing until eventually he changes his tune because of the widow's persistence. Then in verse five, the judge says, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She keeps coming. She keeps coming. So get the picture. She kept coming. The judge kept refusing. She went back, but then she came back. She came back. The judge kept refusing. She went back, and then she came back. You see, I believe in part, this is what many of our prayer lives look like. In part. We come to God. We don't always get what we want or get what, we, what we're seeking from God, and so we go away. And this is where the story takes a turn for us. We don't come back. We say, God's not moving. God's not in this. God's not answering my prayer. So I'm going to go someplace else where I can find the answers for the prayers that I'm crying out for. Now, you fill in the blank with whatever you're filling that void with. But you, you go to that place. Now, for, for some of us who are a little bit uh, maybe um, been walking with Jesus for a little bit longer, you, you might come back, but you still might not get an answer. You go away, 
And even so, you might come back a third time. But there comes a point for many of us, I, I know this for myself because I've, I've been in this place, where we just, at, at the judge's refusal, we just give up. When we lose heart, it seems that most of us stop praying. I wonder if Jesus gave us those two instructions right up front because he knows your tendency and my tendency, and that is when we lose heart, we stop praying. When we feel like, okay, God's not moving. I'm, Dan, I'm in the word. He's just not showing up. I'm praying. I'm just not getting any answers. I'm showing up here, and, and, and the worship team is leading me in music, but I'm not feeling anything. I'm not sensing anything. I, I don't know what to do about this. I'm, I'm just, I keep coming, but the judge keeps refusing. And there comes a point where I'm, Dan, I'm just tired of coming back. I'm just tired of coming back. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about long, enduring prayers. Not easily quitting prayers, but long, enduring prayers. Uh, I want to I wrap up the, uh, the message with this final story here, and it's a personal one. In fact, I, for whatever reason, um, I would put this story in, in, my, in my sermon preparation, and then I always felt like the Lord was saying, no, it's, it's not time to share the story. Just, it's, this, this isn't going to work. And so I would always delete, delete, delete. And, and I was preparing this message. I felt like the Lord said, okay, I, I want you to share a little piece of your story. I remember a few semesters ago, it was about, um, I believe, fall semester 2016, so about exactly a year ago, I was going through what was the driest season of my spiritual life. Now, for those of you who don't grow up in the church, that just means an empty, empty season, just a, you know, a season where you're just not experiencing the fullness of God. You're not experiencing any of that. Um, I, I've, been a, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, all my life. I grew up in the church. I might have even been conceived in the church. I'm not sure. You know, it's just, I just grew up. I, I, I was a church kid. But listen, I wasn't just a, a casual church kid. I was like a serious church kid. Yeah, I don't know if you were one of those, like you grew up in the church, like you were at youth group, every youth group function and retreat. And like, I was, I was serious. I was the president of my youth group. I started leading worship in the fifth, sixth grade. Like I started, you know, some of you know this. I picked up the guitar because I wanted to pick up girls and the youth pastor was like, hey, Dan, you play the guitar. Why don't you lead worship for us? I'm like, All right, okay. You know, I started, started leading some songs. And, and so I was, I was a dedicated church kid. And for as long as I've been a follower of Jesus, I have never hit a season like this in my life before, this dry, this empty. Now, mind you, I've, I've had dry seasons before, but all the dry seasons that I've gone through are what I like to identify as self-inflicted dry seasons, where because I'm not spending time in God's presence, I feel dry. Because I'm not spending time in God's word or, or spending time in prayer or spending time in community and fellowship with other believers, I'm feeling dry. Because I'm isolating myself, I feel dry. Or because I'm just straight up rebelling or sinning, living in sin, right? I touched upon this a little bit last week in last week's message. And, and those are what I call self-inflicted dry seasons. This season wasn't like that. This season was actually vastly different. In fact, during this season, I was in the Word more than ever before. I was in prayer more fervently than ever before. I was so desperate for God. I, I was so hungry for God. There, there were 
this was a moment in my life where at every opportunity that I had to seek after God, I was abandoned. I said, hands raised high, I'm going after you, Jesus. I'm going after you. And yet still, as much as I did all of that, I was getting nothing but radio silence from heaven. You ever been there? You're doing all the right things. You're putting in all the right time, and yet God just for whatever reason seems to just be completely absent. Like he just doesn't give a crap about what's going on in my life. You ever been there? I, I, I remember there was, there was one week I was just having a really hard time. I went to, I went to my elder board. I said, guys, you got to pray for me. Because I, I just don't feel the nearness of God at all. At all. At all. I remember there were times when I was working on sermons and, and, and you know, just preparing to, to come here and preach to you guys. And, you know, I, and I remember sitting in my office studying and, and, and writing out all these, all these notes and things like that. And in the back of my mind, I'm telling you, this, was, this would happen on the daily, all the time. I would hear this little natty voice, like natty voice coming in and saying, this is stupid. This is nonsense. No one wants to hear what you have to say. Everyone knows this. You're not providing any new information. This is all, you're, you just sound like wah, 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 wah. Folks, when I came up here every Sunday last fall semester, those are the voices that shaped the sermons you received. Now, I know the voices were the enemies, but in the moment, I couldn't tell. I cannot tell for the life of me. And I started internalizing it. Not only that, I would meet with some of you. I would meet with students, right? At Panera, whatever, you know, and I'm sitting across the table. And I'm like, I got nothing. I got, I don't even know what to say here. I've got nothing to add to this conversation. I remember there were some meetings I walked out of Panera thinking to myself, well, I basically faked that whole meeting. Because I, I didn't feel like I had any value to give. I just, I, I just threw out some, you know, some Bible verses and, and just prayed that something sticks. Because I felt like I wasn't getting anything from God. And, and, and not just ministry settings, just even in my own personal walk with Jesus, I felt like everything that I was doing was void of God's presence. It's like, I, I don't know what to do. I feel like God is far. I feel like God is distant. I feel like God just doesn't care. It was hard as anything else that I've had to, gone through, go, have to go through. It was in that state that that semester ended, and that following January, I went to a conference. And uh, I, I got through the day of, of conference sessions, and I went back to my hotel room. I, I, was, you know, just, I was by myself. I didn't go to the conference with anyone. And I went to bed as I normally would. And I, I remember at around 4 a.m., God woke me up from a deep sleep. Now, it sounds odd, and uh, it sounds odd even for me saying it, because that has never happened to me before. In fact, nothing has woken up me up from a deep sleep. In fact, you can ask my wife, Nicole. Like, it takes a lot to get me out of a deep sleep and at 4 a.m., I shot up out of my bed as if it was 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I was wide awake. Again, this has never happened to me before. In that moment, I instantly knew that this was God waking me up. 
Again, I know, it sounds weird. I, I, I don't know. It's just, yeah, I take it up with the Lord. I, he, he does these things every once in a while. He woke me up, and I remember as clear as day. Now, I didn't hear the audible voice of God. I didn't hear the actual voice of God. But I heard the voice of God so, I sensed him saying so clearly, as clear as day, he said, son, never stop pursuing me. Never stop pursuing me. And I'm like, God, three freaking months, that's what I've been doing. What are you doing for me? I'm like, I got, I'm, I'm, I'm running on empty here, God. I need to know that you're, you're in this. I need to know that you're near. Ha, I don't know if you've ever been there. You're like, I don't, I don't need a big revelation. I don't need a big revival meeting. I don't, need, I don't need writings on the wall or in the sky. I just need to know that God is near. That's all. If I just have that, I'd be content. For all of that fall semester, I felt like God was not near to me at all. And, and here comes God saying, son, never stop pursuing me. And I'm like, what the frick, God? What do you think I've been doing? What do you think I've been I've been pressing in. I've been pressing in when I just want to bail. And God says, that's precisely what I wanted to teach you during that season. You see, if you can pursue me the way you pursued me during the driest seasons of your life, you're going to pursue me when, when there's harvest time. You're going to pursue me when, when streams of living water is flowing in your life. I want you to never stop pursuing me. Friends, there are some of you here that are going through some dry spells, that are going through some dry seasons. You're coming to God in prayer. You're coming to God in, in the word and you're like, God, I'm not feeling like I'm getting anything from you. Friends, perhaps it could be that God is calling you to long, enduring prayers. Now, three months in the grand scheme is not terribly long. And maybe for some of you, you've been going through a dry season for maybe a year, maybe a couple of years. First of all, you ought to ask yourself the question, is this a self-inflicted dry season that I'm in? Or am I genuinely, persistently pursuing God in this season? That's what we're talking about when we talk about long, enduring prayers. When we look at the parable of the persistent widow, Jesus tells us, always pray and never lose heart. Always pray and never lose heart. Yes, but more specifically, I believe that Jesus is calling us to be a people that knows, that learns how to pray God-conscious. God, you are Holy, you're awesome, and I'm going to start there. Not with my needs, not with self-conscious prayers, but with God-conscious prayers. I'm going to pray faith-filled prayers. I'm going to believe in you and not just things about you. I'm going to pray long, enduring prayers, not no enduring prayers. Church, if we get there, if we get to that place, I, don't even, I can't even imagine what that will do to the life of our church, to the life of our community to your personal lives.